Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at driving disruptive innovation, how to disrupt yourself in the quest for a more meaningful personal and professional life, telltale signs of companies with disruptive innovation in their blood, and why we'd all be better off if we spent more time dreaming and less time staring at screens. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Whitney Johnson, author of Dare, Dream, Do. Remarkable things happen when you dare and dream. Whitney is, as her website describes her, an investor in stocks, people, concepts, and dreams. A role she currently fills running a speaking slash coaching organization that bears her name. Prior to starting her own shop, Whitney launched Rose Park Advisors alongside Clayton Christensen. Rose Park is an investment firm that had $75 million under management when Whitney left to start her own shop in 2012. Prior to Rose Park, Whitney had a successful stint on Wall Street as an award-winning equities analyst at Merrill Lynch. Whitney is a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, a TEDx speaker, and a senior advisor to the Tribeca Disruptive Innovation Awards. She was named one of Inc. Magazine's 12 people to follow on Twitter in 2012, Business Insider's 54 Smart Thinkers to Follow, and Huffington Post's 100 Business, Leadership, and Technology People to Follow on Twitter. You can find her online at WhitneyJohnson.com and on Twitter at at @JohnsonWhitney. Welcome to the podcast, Whitney. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Whitney, let's kick things off by defining what exactly we're talking about when we say disruptive innovation because you have a very specific definition of the term, right? I do. Um, We hear this term a lot, but let me explain it to you just so that it's very clear as we go throughout our our conversation over the next few minutes. Disruptive innovation is a low-end or new market innovation that eventually upends an industry. Now, the disruptors actually secure a foothold in the low end of the market, and you can think Amazon in the 90s, and then they pursue profit Um, gradually producing higher performance, higher margin products. Established competitors like a Barnes & Noble or a Borders could aggressively counter an attack by a low-end disruptor, but they don't because it doesn't make financial sense. To defend their least profitable products when they themselves can move up market. Until, of course, it does make sense, and by then it's too late. Okay, got it. And our our last guest uh, was Horace Dediu, who's a student of Clay Christensen's, who you have some history with. What did you What did you make of the recent New Yorker article uh, that kind of takes on Clay Christensen's theories or writing about disruptive innovation? Oh yeah, there's been quite a hullabaloo around that, hasn't there? Um, I actually wrote a piece on LinkedIn, um, my response to it, and I would say. A couple of things. One of the the reasons, one of the things that Jill Lepore mentions is that the theory hasn't undergone a lot of scrutiny. But for me, I think one of the reasons it hasn't undergone so much intense scrutiny is that when people read Innovator's Dilemma, they immediately said, oh, I get it. This explains something that I, I haven't quite seen. And so there was a lot of qualitative data that was mounting and mounting and mounting and because it helps people explain their own experience. And certainly that was true for me. I I read The Innovator's Dilemma um, probably in 2003, 2004. At the time, I was working as um, an analyst at Merrill Lynch covering uh, emerging markets, telecom, and media. 
And one of the things I saw happening was that um, you had wireline telecom basically at 15% or so penetration in Mexico. You had wireless that had sort of come out of nowhere and was at 25% penetration. This is, again, around 2002, 2003. And I was trying to forecast where I thought wireless penetration would go. And I thought, okay, well, based on the demographics, I really went out on a limb and said, I think it'll get to 40%. Well, the story, as we now know it, you fast forward to 2007 and even to today, wireline penetration in Mexico really hasn't moved much at all. It's around 20% versus 15%, you know, 15 years ago. But wireless has gone from 25% to nearly 90%. And one of the things that happened for me is as I read The Innovator's Dilemma, I realized it was explaining to me exactly everything that was happening, that you had all of these people who wanted to communicate, but they couldn't afford to. And so when you presented them with this wireless handset, even though the signal was inferior, that inferior signal quality was a very small price to pay for people who wanted to communicate. And so I saw firsthand how wireless would disrupted wireline. And so for me, that was a very qualitative, and you could probably argue quantitative example of how this theory explained what I saw playing out. And I think you've had people over and over and over again on um, having that experience when they read the book, so there, it didn't necessarily need to come under scrutiny. Now, that being said, I would say, you know, one of the things, and I mentioned this in my article, is that good theory always looks at the anomalies. And, um, and this is even a piece that Clay had written. And so one of the things I think that Ms. Lepore's article does is she presents a number of anomalies. And so this um, theory, which I sort of consider maybe it's now hitting puberty, where when you hit puberty, you ask a lot of questions and you're trying to figure out your identity and who you are. I think her in presenting all of those anomalies really gives um, Clayton an opportunity to look at those anomalies and see how can you further burnish this, this theory, beginning with questions like Apple, because Apple is something that he didn't get right. And, I, you know, Horace is obviously an expert in Apple. Um, and so I think that's an opportunity to say, okay, well, maybe let's look at this. Why didn't we get it right? So long story short, I think that this theory has come under more scrutiny than most would say, but it's been more qualitative, and we don't tend to respect qualitative data. Um, and then now it's an opportunity. It's in it's hit puberty. We're asking questions. We've got a lot of anomalies. I think she has given and presented an opportunity to really move this forward. Okay, got it. So disruptive innovation is is the theme that we want to cover today. Uh, what would be some examples that that you think are most relevant of companies that have been notable disruptive innovators in the last few years? And is there anything or is there a series of things that you can point to that all of these companies have in common? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of examples, um, you know, Barnes & Noble and Borders, right? They were disrupted, obviously, by Amazon. Um, I think that is a good example. Um, and, you know, you had asked me earlier to think about sort of this idea of value networks. Um, you know, Barnes and & Noble and Borders had a specific way of solving a problem, sell more books in the small bookstores, people can get their books immediately, whereas Amazon came in a completely different context. People wanted the comfort of shopping at home, any book they wanted, an algorithm that would remember what they liked. 
And because it was technology versus bricks and mortar, it was an order of magnitude cheaper. So it was a completely different cost model and therefore value network. Some, you know, specific examples in addition to Barnes and Noble and Amazon is one com- uh, university in the education space, Southern New Hampshire University. A decade ago, it was a 2,000-person college declining enrollment. Instead of playing catch-up, they um, and trying to compete with the Ivies, they decided to play where very few people were playing. And today, it's the Amazon of education with 34,000 students, and it's in the process of innovating again by focusing on competency-based education rather than by credit. Um, so those are just a couple of examples. Um, and in terms of, you know, things that in disruptive innovators have in common, I would say they know how to take the right risks. Um, they take on market risk rather than competitive risk. Market risk meaning you have no idea if there's a market there. You have no idea if there will be customers. Um, but when you go after market versus competitive risk, one of the things that we learned from the innovator's dilemma is that um, the odds of success are six times higher and the revenue opportunity 20 times greater when you take on market risk. Okay, good deal. So one, one thing that we've talked about on the podcast in the past is the necessity for companies to boost their innovation capacity through acquisition sometimes. Uh, you mm-hmm. spent a number of years as an analyst on Wall Street for Merrill Lynch, as you mentioned. What were some of the things that you looked for to assess a company's innovation potential when you worked on Wall Street? That's a great question, and I think, um, frankly, it would be disingenuous of, of me to say that I was really focused on that, and mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason that the innovator's dilemma was so intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, it helped me understand what was happening with wireless versus wireline. Um, that being said, what do I look for now, today, you know, as having worked with Clay investing for five years and then now in the process of, of launching another fund, is, you know, are companies taking the right risks? Are they taking on market versus competitive risks? To what extent are they embracing the constraints that they have in front of them? I think because constraints also present an opportunity for market risk. And then one that we may not necessarily think of, but I think is really important, is to what extent are they battling entitlement within, you know, as a company and um, the people inside of the organization. And, of course, this is really, really difficult, especially if you're a publicly traded company because you have analysts like me who expect you to make your quarterly numbers. But if you're a really smart investor, a long-term Warren Buffett-type investor, you're going to look at someone like Jonathan Bush, who's the CEO of Athena Health, and instead of slamming the stock when they don't get their quarterly numbers, look at it and say, okay, wait a second. He said he was going to go here. Um, In fact, he is taking the right risks. He's battling entitlement as a company and personally. He's putting failure in its place, meaning they're iterating to try to find the right solutions. And as a company, they're doing this and they're allowing their employees inside of the company to do this. Then that, to me, says that they've got real innovation potential over the long term. So let me ask you to, to clarify, because I think probably a lot of people, myself included, would know what entitlement means in the societal sense. But when you talk about it in the corporate sense, what do you mean by entitlement? Ah, great question. Yeah, so um, a good example inside of a corporation would be, you, you know, like you said, there's a societal piece. But when you move up the ladder um, professionally, you literally become entitled. You have a title, and you know, and, and there's this sense of stature that goes with this. Well, one of the problems that happens when you become entitled is that it can become very easy for you not to hear new ideas. 
um, for you only to listen to the ideas of people who are above you, not necessarily people alongside you or people who are junior to you or people who are not like you. And yet we know from the, the research that the best innovations come with a diversity of thought, and you get that diversity of thought by talking to people who aren't like you. And so one of the ways I think you battle entitlement inside of a corporation is to be willing to talk to people below you, alongside you, outside of your company, you know, different race, different gender, et cetera. Okay, got it. Makes perfect sense. So you, you talked a little bit in the previous answer about uh, about the notion of kind of sustained innovation versus disruptive innovation. Is there a certain ratio of sustained innovation to disruptive innovation that companies should try to strike? Is it 80-20, 20-80, somewhere in between? I think that's actually a great question. I think the numbers, I think directionally you want to, you know, I would say disruptive 20 on sustaining 80. I mean, if you think about a business, I mean, whenever you've got a business that's a scalable business, the reason you're able to scale it is because you've, you've codified the processes. You've got the trains running smoother, smoothly. And part of the success will come because you figure out ways continually to do whatever you're doing better. So I think, you know, sustaining innovations are what allow you to scale ever more profitably. So I think certainly um, when you're first scaling, you definitely want the sustaining innovations. And 80% is probably the right number, but you still need that 20% of disruptive, and that's really the trick, right? Because when you're starting to scale and everything about your business says, you know, codify make everything more efficient. It's hard for you to sort of give people the freedom to go out and think about new markets and think about ideas that don't necessarily fit into the framework that you're trying to to um, put in place at that particular time. I, I would say, um, you know, later in a business, as it becomes more mature, I think then you flip that 80-20 on its head and you need to go from, you know, 80% sustaining to 80% disruption and 20% sustaining because that's the time where you're at the top of your learning curve or S-curve. You've got to jump to a new curve, and the best possible way for you to reinvent yourself is to be willing to focus on disruption. Okay, interesting. I, I would think those those ratios would be almost on their head as you're trying to launch a new company, but that's that's an interesting. I, I'm sure you you know better than I do. So uh, well, well, and again, I, I well, well, what I would say is, I, you know, I think eighty twenty. I think you know, those are numbers, right? Sure. It could be seventy thirty, but I think if you focus on sort of directionally where you need to be and understand where your emphasis needs to be. Then if you, you know, whether it's 20%, you know, if it's 70%, 80 or 90, directionally, you're going to be right. And that's, that's the important piece of it. Sure. Okay. So let me ask you about, uh, about your book in 2012, you published the book that we mentioned in the, in the intro, it's called dare dream do what's the overarching message of the book. And can you delve a little bit into the three-step process you define to engineer internal change? Yes, Absolutely. So the overarching message is I, I took a sabbatical from Wall Street after I left equity research and before I co-founded the fund with Clayton. And at that point, when I was no longer working 80 hours a week, I had time to have conversations with people and, you know, really interesting, competent, capable people. And I started asking them the question, what's your dream? And frequently, I found that people didn't have a dream. And oftentimes there was even an unspoken, I'm not sure it's my privilege to dream. And so when that happened, I knew I had to build a pace. I knew I had to persuade people to dream, especially 
in, in the United States where we lived the American dream and I found that people weren't dreaming. And so the genesis of this was me trying to persuade people, build a case for why it's important to dream. You know, we dream for our children. We dream to make meaning of our lives. We dream so that we'll actually grow up and become adults, you know, not only in age, but in how we behave. And, um, and so that's the overarching message. And then the idea was is that you needed to have dare first because for many people, um, you know, if you were eight years old still, then it would be dream and then dare. But I think that, you know, as life kind of moves along and we've got all sorts of exigencies in place, we stop daring. And so I felt like the first step had to be for people to dare. And then the dream portion of it is, okay, I'm ready to dare, but how do I even figure out what, what my dream is? And so part of that is figuring out, you know, what are your strengths? What are things that you do reflexively well? What are your superpowers? And helping people identify those. And then the third part is really building on the execution that I've done in my business life and helping people do the do part of the dreaming. And so what's interesting is that so that all of that piece comes in and the way that maps back to disruption is I think you cannot disrupt yourself, which I advocate for people to do and for companies to do if you don't have a dream. Because if you're jumping from one curve to the next, you're basically going into free fall. And you've got to have that dream that actually packs the parachute for you to be able to move to that new place. Okay, great. And, and for listeners out there whose dream may be to write a book of their own, uh, what was that process like for you? Oh, that's a great question. The process was, in, you know, in disruptive fashion, you know, back in 2007, 2008, it was obviously a different world. But, you know, if I had wanted to write a book, I, I wouldn't have had any publishers, you know, willing to listen to me. So what did I do? I started low end in a disruptive fashion. I started blogging where the barriers to entry are really, really low. And so that gave me an opportunity to start figuring out, you know, what I had to say and also to socialize my ideas so that when I did publish a book or go to a publisher and say, you know, I have this idea, they were willing to listen to me because they knew that there were already people who were reading my blog, who were following me on social media and were interested in what I had to say. So my advice to people if they want to write a book is to make sure that you're either blogging or, you know, posting on LinkedIn and you're involved in social media because that will not only help you find your voice, but you'll find people who are interested in what you have to say. And that will give you the momentum that you need in order to get a publisher interested in publishing your ideas. And you'll already know there's an audience for it. So you'll sell more books. Right, and it opens up doors to write on places like Harvard Business Review, where you uh, contribute often. Uh, I'm looking at a post right now on making your innovative innovative ideas seem less terrifying, uh, and in that you name yeah. you name the the one most important thing or important trait for a uh, for an entrepreneur to have. Can you share that with listeners? Yes, absolutely. So. Um, one of the most important traits an entrepreneur can have is the ability to persuade. And um, when you think about that, the ability to persuade is to put your ideas in writing or to convey your ideas verbally and um, have people have buy-in to your vision of the future. Because when you're selling a company or selling a product, you're basically saying your future will be better if you buy this product and you need to persuade people to see your vision. And so one of the whole ideas behind this you know, notion of disruption is that when you want to get someone to buy your product or buy your company, you're inviting them to jump to a new curve with you. 
And to do that, you need to help them see the vision that you see and pack that parachute for them by helping them understand what you're seeing, give them compelling data for why it makes sense, and in, and in effect, de-risk the idea for them. Okay, so, so one of your many passions is the Tribeca Disruptive Innovation Awards, uh, which you were yes. the driving force behind starting. It's now in its fifth year. So how did the awards come to be, and can you give us an idea of some of the kinds of people who have won it in years past? Yes, absolutely. So uh, Craig Katkoff, um, who is the founder of the Tribeca Film Festivals, Robert De Niro and Jane Rosenthal, his um, his wife, it, they um, Craig was very intrigued by disruptive innovation, and we had had a number of conversations with Craig and Clayton and myself um, and so over, you know, course of a couple of years, I really brokered with Clay and said, you know, this is interesting. Let's do this. You know, let's pursue this with Craig. And so we did this, you know, the first year kind of, again, in disruptive style. What do we have? It was very small, very unceremonious, if you will. It's just, you know, let's do these awards and, and see, see what we got. And we realized there was something special. So we did it again the next year, and it's continued to now we're in sustaining innovation mode, and it's getting better and bigger and, and more efficient. Um, one of the people that I especially loved was a fellow by the name of Dr. Stephen Curley. He's a, a man who won the award, um, I think, in year three. John Kansas, a few years prior, um, was a radio technician. He had cancer, and he had begun experimenting with um, pie pans and hot dogs, trying to find non-invasive ways to, to treat cancer. And so he cold called Dr. Curley. And Dr. Curley, rather than just blowing him off, which he easily could have done because John Kansas was a radio technician, Dr. Curley said, you know what, let me hear what you have to say. So John Kansas went in and he met with him, and eventually, because Stephen Curley was not entitled, he was willing to listen, um, he's now pursuing this research, this cancer research that he says is the most exciting development in 20 years, all beginning with John Kansas and his pie pans and hot dogs. So that's a great example to me of disruptive innovation, of people battling entitlement, and just one of the many people that have received the award. So very, very exciting stuff. Very nice. And and you've mentioned kind of in, in true disruptive fashion or true disruptive style a few times over the course of the conversation. And it sounds like a part of it is almost just taking the first step to actually do something. Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important steps and um, is this is this willingness to begin. Because, in fact, if you think about it, sometimes entitlement can come in the form of not beginning, right? Waiting for other people to, you know, give you the go-ahead or, you know, waiting for them to say it's okay or whatever. And instead, if you're not entitled, you just say, you know what? I want to do this. I believe in this. I'm going to take the first step. I don't need. Um, I don't need to wait. And then you proceed forward. So I think just starting with where you are is one of the best possible things you can do. Okay. So Whitney, we've we've talked about the book Dare Dream Do. We've talked about your writing at HBR.org. Uh, can you give Can you give listeners a little bit of insight into what you're doing with your consulting firm and what's next on the horizon for you? Yep. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, so one of the things I've been doing, you know, over the last two years is, is doing a lot of um, speaking and coaching on, on driving disruption via personal, you know, personal disruption. And I'm also in the process of launching a new fund called Springboard Fund with Kay Koplovitz, who founded USA Network, to invest in um, high-growth women-led businesses. So that's something I'm very excited about. 
I'm also in the process of, of writing the book Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. And so that's coming out in 2015. And I'm really excited, you know, to, to the notion of codifying processes something that I've written about extensively and spoken about extensively, but I'm excited to actually put these words down on paper because I think that there will be some additional discoveries and ideas, you know, to be able to continue to build out this this IP and these ideas and help people move their careers and their lives forward. Okay, great. So 2015, we can look for the follow-up to Dare, Dream, Do? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a follow-up, maybe perhaps a companion piece. So the Dare Dream Do is kind of like that cup of hot chocolate when you need something to encourage you. And Disrupt Yourself is a little bit more on the business side. But, but yes, definitely companion piece. Okay, and, and you mentioned some of, your, some of your speaking engagements. You spoke at TEDx not too far back. What was the topic of that talk? Uh, disrupt Yourself. Okay. So, um, yeah, so earlier this year, um, I spoke at SAP on the future of business at four different engagements throughout the country on the topic of disrupt yourself. Um, so I, I, you know, I do speak extensively on this topic and, um, it's, it's a lot of fun to really take these frameworks and, and because, you know, initially, obviously I was looking at them through the lens of, okay, how do you use these to invest or how do you use these? to identify companies, um, well, mostly to invest, whether they're early stage or later stage. And it's been really interesting and fascinating for me to understand and recognize that, in fact, these frameworks apply to individuals and that you can't actually really have a disruptive company if you're not, on an ongoing basis, willing to disrupt yourself. And, and what has become of Rose Park Advisors, the firm you started alongside Clay Christensen? Still around and investing? Yes, they're still around. Um, so they're still very much, um, again, it started out actually as um, focusing just on publicly traded securities, but now it's become a hybrid of investing in publicly traded as well as early stage. So, yeah, they're still around, and um, Clayton Fund, Matt, is running that. Okay, very nice. And anything on the, uh, on the editorial calendar of the Harvard Business Review that we, that we should be keeping an eye out for? Um, well, I think the content, I, I mean, I just wrote a piece called Six Tips for Reluctant Negotiators, but I think in the context of our conversation today, I would look up a piece that I wrote on LinkedIn called Has Disruption Hit Puberty? Because I think that's, you know, interesting in the context of the conversation about disruptive innovation. And it's a, a quick recap of what I mentioned earlier in the conversation about where we are with this and what do we do with this theory? Because I think a lot of us do actually believe that it's been very helpful in, in framing how we think about our businesses. Okay. And, uh, and if we were looking for, for a sneak peek into maybe the, the key findings or, or the key uh, framework that you would put forth and disrupt yourself, are there you know, four or five or six things that you have as kind of the overarching messages of the book that you, that you can share ahead of time? Yeah, well, one of the things I would definitely do is pull up the HDR piece that I wrote of how to make an innovative idea less terrifying. Um, so one of the things I will definitely be talking about in the, in the book is, okay, so you've committed to being disruptive, but how do you move your ideas, your disruptive ideas throughout your organization, and how do you help to jumpstart innovation amongst your colleagues, et cetera? And so that's one of the things I would look at. And one of the most important tenets of that, and it sounds almost ridiculously simple, is to learn to socialize your idea. And what does that mean? You know, whether it's identifying your stakeholders, 
um, figuring out how to translate that idea in a way that people can understand it and battling the entitlement in the sense of you're willing to do the work to actually socialize the idea and not just expect that people should like it because you know it's a good idea, but actually do that work to move that idea along. Okay, we're running a little low on time here, Whitney. Are there any words of wisdom you haven't gotten in already that you'd like to share with listeners looking to deliver disruptive innovation in their organization? Sure, absolutely. I, I would say it's it's tweakable, um, and it's more a recap of what I've said um, during our conversation. Um, the first is dare to disrupt yourself, dreams, your very own dreams, and do. Very nice. Great note to close on. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Whitney. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I, it was a pleasure being here. If you're interested in finding out more about Whitney Johnson, you can visit her website at WhitneyJohnson.com, and you can find her on Twitter at, at @JohnsonWhitney. You can also find her book, Dare, Dream, Do, on her website, on Amazon.com, BNN.com, IndieBound, and in bookstores throughout the U.S. Thanks again to Whitney Johnson for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode, when we're very excited to have Dr. Timothy Chow of Stanford University on the podcast to talk about innovation and the cloud. We'll be looking at how the cloud can help companies in their quest for radical innovation, industries and verticals that are the most ripe for disruption based on advancements in cloud computing, and how the cloud and the Internet of Things will combine to change the world as we know it. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.